Well, the lenses we wear have an immediate effect on how we see things. I see I'm not the only glasses wearer uh, in the room. Some of you are contact wearers. You know, they change how we see things, whatever we put on. Some, you know, in the, in the summer, when the sun is here in northern Michigan, and we put on sunglasses that help to dim the light because, you know, it, it, can, be, it can be too much for us, or even when we're driving, it changes things. So the lenses we put on impact our vision. The same is true in life. The lenses that we look through have an immediate effect on how we see things. So two weeks ago, we experienced this very thing when it was written in 1 Samuel 16, 7, this phrase, the Lord doesn't look at things people look at. People look at the outward. Now, you just got to grab this. This is so important. God's vision is different than ours. People look at the outward appearance. Thank you, dear. But God looks at, what does God look at? Okay, God looks at the heart. He sees things differently than we do. We work through and walk through the door of of this place and we look at someone and we automatically think, boy, they're sharp or they've got it together or they need help. We make these judgments just on an outward appearance. God sees it differently. And the lenses God sees through look at reality. And for good or bad, we see people's looks, their possessions, their talent, their intellect, their popularity, and we either give them credit or we judge them in that light. And, and a big lesson from the life of David that we're going to work through into today's study and discussion, the big lesson is this. God isn't enamored with the externals. He values hearts. God's not impressed with the outside. God looks at who we truly are on the inside and makes appropriate evaluation. So every external, just think about it, As we work through the series on David, up close and personal, every external evaluation that was made throughout the whole narrative was was wrong. It was messed up. So for instance, the very beginning there was Saul. He was tall. He was dark. He was handsome. He was a great soldier. He was a great warrior. Everyone knew this guy is king material. However, it was messed up from the very beginning. David's brothers were taller, they were bolder, they were trained to be military grade. One of them should have been king. We're going to hear his name this morning, Eliab. They ended up seeing Eliab and they're like, wow, this guy, king me. Instantly they would think that for him. But the reality was, it was different than what people saw. We're going to see another character today, Goliath. Guess what people saw when they saw Goliath? They were thinking, this guy should be playing Detroit basketball. They need him. He is huge. He's intimidating. He's wearing so much armor, and people look on the outside, and they think, this guy is unbeatable. There is no way we could ever, ever take him down. 
Another person we're going to come to see in future weeks, Bathsheba. Bathsheba was gorgeous. Certainly she would satisfy and make life better. Every external evaluation throughout David messed things up. God doesn't see it that way. God's vision is better than ours. Here's what the reality is. God sees reality. We see superficiality. Superficiality impairs our judgment. We make bad calls. We make premature or erroneous judgments. And that type of evaluation is on full display today in 1 Samuel 17. So I just, would you grab your Bible or your phone or whatever you got? 1 Samuel 17. If you're at home, whichever mechanism works best for you, either to grab your copy of the scriptures or an electronic device, let's look at 1 Samuel 16 or 17 together. I want to read through some things. Here's the setting that all of this was in. Verses 1 to 3, here's the setting, and it says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesdamon between Soko and the Ezekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley stuck between them. So here's this ultimate battle between Israel and between the Philistines and it was all surrounding this valley of Elah. I just want to give you a few pictures. This is a real place. And here's some, here's some pics of it. This is an aerial view of the valley of Elah. You can kind of begin to see that there's two hills on either side of it. And there's a ground view I want to show you. This is, if you're on the ground and you're kind of taking a peek, you begin to see the one hill on the left, the one hill on the right. And then the valley cutting up through the center. This valley had a roadway, an ancient roadway, that was popular for people going to Jerusalem. And there still is a roadway that goes through it right now. So this southern hillside is believed where the Philistine army set up. So just imagine, instead of trees, you have soldiers all scattered across there with Goliath down toward the bottom of the hill. And then on the other side of the valley is where the Israelites were set up on this hill and their soldiers. And so with that kind of a picture in mind of everyone on either side, the big valley vacant in between, here's how we move into one of the biggest characters in all of Scripture. If you look at verse 4, we'll read down through verse 10. This is who was set up as the main picture initially in first samuel 17 it says a champion named goliath who was from gath came out of the philistine camp his height was six cubits and a span let me just break this down for you that is nine foot nine inches tall he was a giant it goes on he had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a scoat, a, a scoat, yeah, right. A coat of scale armor 
of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. Let me just translate that for you. His coat of armor weighed 125 pounds. It's outrageous. Then it goes on. On his legs he wore bronze greaves. He just... He had protection going down his legs. It was bronze. A bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point, this is just the point, people, weighed 600 shekels. The point of his spear weighed 36 pounds. This is what he would just wave through the air like a butter knife. This man was strong, He was imposing. And so it mentions in verse 8, well, his shield bearer went out in front of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man, have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. This is a representative battle. You send your best guy, and I'll take him on, and whoever wins, that's who ends up being dominant in this whole thing. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man. Let us fight each other. And notice this, on hearing the Philistine's words, Saul, King Saul, and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. What happens when we don't see things God's way? What happens when we just see the superficial? What happens when we look at the external? I'm going to show you from this passage by three different individuals. This is what happens when we look on the outward. And we don't look toward the upward. This is what happens. So follow me. Here's the three individuals. When we don't see things as God does. Here's number one. When we don't see things as God does, we fear what God wants us to fight. When we don't see things as God does, we fear what God wants us to fight. So the first group is Israel. And here they ended up, when they saw Goliath, they had the same response every time. When they saw him, when they heard him, look at verse 11, if you would, of chapter 17. This is what we just read. When they heard the Philistines' words, their king, Saul, and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Here the word dismayed means They were broken. They were shattered. And and the idea, the word is like the limbs of a bow. So here's an article of war. This is something that should be going into battle, and yet it was broken before them. It was shattered. They were unable to fight. They were unable to stand. They were crushed. They were incapable to advance victory for for their group, for their army. That's where Israel was. They feared what God wanted them to fight. Notice verse 24. Jump down there because the text mentions 
Whenever the Israelites saw the man, whenever they saw Goliath, they all fled from him in great fear. And the idea of great means it's with abundance, it's with force or intensity. And this fear is that they were absolutely terrified. They stood in awe of him. And in fact, the same word is the same word terrified in verse 11. Here's how they responded. When they saw things from man's perspective, when they didn't look at things from God's perspective, they feared what they should fight. Now, if I could just roll back the tape a little bit. God made promises to Israel. God said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you your land. And I'm going to give you people, a seed that is innumerable. And I'm going to give it to you. Now, here's the perspective. If God makes a promise, he's going to deliver. Are we all together on this here this morning? Amen? So when God makes a promise, he's going to deliver. And God has made hundreds of promises to us. And God told Israel, you're going to have a land. You're going to have a specific piece of land. I'm giving it to you. Done. You're going to have a great people. You're going to impact the whole world. In fact, your people are going to be innumerable. Here they should be fighting for the very things that God promised them because they're going to happen. Now if I can bring this fast forward to today, right here where we are right now, God has made some promises. God has made a mission that he has called us to. He has promised he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He has promised you make disciples and I'm going to be with you to the very end of the age. He has promised he is going to advance his kingdom. He's done that for all of us. And oftentimes, I find myself and we find ourselves, rather than looking at the mission, rather than looking at the promises, rather than looking at God who is with us and what he has promised to do, rather we end up glorying the opposition. We grow the obstacle. We inflate the ability of the adversary in our minds and we give it a place that only God should hold. That's the reality. Oftentimes we fear what we should fight. What paralyzes you? Because fear paralyzes. What paralyzes you from advancing God's directives? We all face fear. I face it. What, what inhibits you from advancing the things that God has promised or the things that he has commanded us to do. I, I just wrote down a few things. There's fear of loss. Maybe the loss of relationship, maybe rejection. <clears throat> you know, people won't accept me. I'm going to lose popularity. I'm going to lose position. You know, if I come out and say, hey, here's, here's where I'm at. This is where I believe the Bible is. Or if you try to build an intentional relationship... We end up fearing, if I say something, if I open my mouth, if I live a certain way, I'm going to lose something. Maybe a loss of a job, a loss of a position, maybe a loss of organizational standing. People really look to me in a certain way, and if I open up, I'm going to lose esteem. What if I fail? People will think, I'm, I'm less valuable. What if it doesn't look good in their eyes? 
You know, we view things from a worldly man-centered perspective when we cower, when we should be courageous. When we don't see things as God does, number one, we fear what God wants us to fight. I need to keep trucking. Here's number two. <clears throat> we pick the wrong battles. Now, friend, <clears throat> if you came here at 9 a.m. this morning and you're tired because you came an hour earlier to church, I applaud you. You're allowed to sleep <clears throat> at noon today. <clears throat> because this may be one of the most important points I've mentioned in a long, long time. We pick the wrong battles. I need to introduce you to someone this morning in the text. <clears throat> we haven't heard from him since he was rejected in being the next king of Israel. His name is Eliab. He's the first son of Jesse. He was the first one in the room when Samuel was there. When God said, you're going to choose a king, it's going to be one of the sons of Jesse. Eliab walked in and Samuel said, this has got to be the guy. This guy is solid. He is tall. He is battle ready. This guy is definitely the next king of Israel. And God says, no, 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 no. I've rejected him. He is not the one, and we're going to find out right now. Why did God reject Eliab? Look at verse 28 in this text. You've got to see these words. It says, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men. So David came into the picture now with Goliath. David was sent by dad, Jesse, to come and bring supplies to his brothers, his three brothers that were in this battle. And so little David shows up. He's a teenager possibly or less. He shows up with supplies. And he hears Goliath cursing their God and mocking Israel. And he walks in and David's like, whoa, hold the phone. This is not right. Who's going to do something about this? And what do they get when they do it? And so David starts talking like this. And so here's the verse. So Eliab... When he heard David speaking with the men around him, saying this, let's do something, here's Eliab's response. He burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those? Just catch this. Do you hear the sarcasm? Do you hear the, the intimidation putting him down? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. Here's Eliab making the judgment call by looking on the outward. <clears throat> You're conceited. You came down here to watch. You just wanted to get in on the action. You're a conceited little boy. Go back to your few sheep. You don't know what you're doing. We're the ones that are capable of handling this thing. Here's one of the biggest things I can tell you today. This thing leaps off the page. It's a lesson for us right now. Catch this phrase. Eliab was fighting 
David rather than Goliath. You catch that? Eliab took on the one who wanted to take on the giant. Instead of battling Goliath, he battled David. He attacked the one who wanted to attack the enemy. He attacked David's credibility, those few sheep in the wilderness. He tried to expose David as a wimp, as a weakling, unqualified to be in this arena. You don't belong here. He attacked David's motivation. I know you're conceited. David, it's all about you, isn't it? Your heart is the wicked one. Talk about a swing and a miss by this man. And he exposed the very reason why God rejected him in the first place. When you don't see things as God does, often the people not doing the work battle the people who are. Now, if I can just leap up and down, not literally, on this. Talk about a picture of America's church. The church talks about the big, bad world hurting the church, but no one does more to inhibit the church's advancement than the church itself. Am I talking truth here today? This is the reality. We know it. This is America. No one writes more articles against the church than the church. It's true. No one does more to hold up the work of reaching our world than the church. No one comes up with more reasons not to advance the church than the church. No one gets more upset when those who are doing the hard work of the church don't do it their way. No one does more to hold up the church than the church. Eliab. Here's a statement by Chuck Swindoll. Chuck says it better than me. Chuck says this, we need to choose our battles wisely. If you don't watch it, all of your battles will be fought among fellow members of the family of God. Here's the big phrase. Meanwhile, the real enemy of our souls roams around our territory, winning victory after victory. Can I just read that one again? I'm gonna do it. Here it comes. We need to choose our battles wisely. If you don't watch it, all of your battles will be fought among fellow members of the family of God. Meanwhile, the real enemy of our souls roams around our territory, winning victory after victory. We know that when we see things from man's perspective, we pick wrong battles time and time again. When our speech and activity go towards stopping God's work rather than stopping God's enemy, when we struggle against those who with passion want to struggle against the enemy, ultimately we're fighting against God. Here's a third one. We'll finish with this. So we end up seeing things. We don't see things as God does when we fear what we should fight. When we pick the wrong battles. Number three, when we underestimate God's work through others. 
So first there was Israel, then there was Eliab, and then here is King Saul. Saul hears about David. David wants to go to battle. David wants to do some serious damage to Goliath. And then he goes up against Saul. Saul says, bring him on in. Let's talk about it. And King Saul ended up hearing about David. When David was brought into the king, here's what Saul said in verse 33. Hey, you're you're not able to go out against the Philistine and fight against him. You're only a young man. Seeing things as man sees him, right? Here we go. You're only a a young man. This guy's been a warrior since his youth. He's got it all over you, man. You can't battle him. What are you thinking? So David saw things from God's point of view. David didn't focus on his age. You know what? I am young or I'm smaller. I don't don't have the training as this guy does. David didn't focus on what man focuses on. David focused on things that God has done. So David steps up and says, hey, Here's the deal. This lion came in when I was watching the sheep. Boom. This bear came in. Interestingly enough, I had a dream last night that a bear attacked me. This is how much these messages affect me, people. It's a cra- I'm not going there. Okay. But David says, I didn't see things like man does. Look what God did. He brought in a lion. Done. He brought in a bear. Done. God delivered me from all of them. That's David's perspective. Saul saying, you can't do this. You're shorter. He's got more experience. You're a goner. You see the two perspectives? And then when David insisted to fight Goliath, here's the other crazy thing. Saul insisted, if you're going to fight him, I get blown away by this every time. (laughs) It just gets me. Saul's too afraid to fight. And then when David says, I'm going to fight him, Saul makes him do it his way. Kind of like, yo, bro, if you're not going to fight, get out of the way. Let the kid go. Let him do it as God has put it in his heart. Don't shackle him. This is how I fought back when I used to have courage. (laughs) Nice one, buddy go he sticks all of his armor on david you got to be loaded up this way if you're going to take him on you here's how you got to do it these are my expectations you got to look at you got to be it and you got to do it and all this armor goes on david he's like uh yeah king i don't think this is gonna work he would have been a goner he says this is the only way i know how to serve god this way Check out verse 40. He took a stick. <laughs> I love it. Against Goliath's 125 pounds of army, David grabs a staff, a stick, and he chose five smooth stones from the stream. And he put them in his pouch of his shepherd's bag. And he had a sling in his hand, pieces of leather with a little cup on the end. And he approached the Philistine. Isn't that awesome? I just love it. David didn't shackle himself by trying to do it Saul's way. 
And for the first time in this whole battle, someone actually moved toward the enemy, people. Finally, instead of running from it, cowering from it, shaking from it, finally someone out of this whole army moved toward the enemy, the real enemy. God was doing something through that little kid. This passage is an absolute kick in the fanny of the American church. Our enemy is roaming, free to taunt, free to gain territory. And the American church shows they don't see things like God does when they are paralyzed in fear, when they fight each other, and when they shackle those who would fight with their own personal expectations. And then we wonder why the church growth rate in America is 0.08%. Where everyone else and everywhere else is advancing. If we only saw what God sees, not what man sees, if only we had the perspective like David, he saw God's promises as stronger than Goliath. He saw God's training and preparation through his past experience with the lion and the bear. He saw God's activity and presence as constant. He says, the living God, the living God is here. The living God rescued me. The living God will deliver you into my hands. He didn't see Goliath as greater than God. He didn't focus on the slight and the slander from Goliath, Eliab, or Saul. He saw it all differently. And he walked and marched and advanced toward the real enemy. That's what he did. David knew there was a battle to be won, an enemy to be defeated, and a God to be exalted, and that's exactly what he saw. So I want to ask you three questions as we finish. Would you stand with me? Because I want you to begin to think and finish our thought today with ease in your mind. Here's question number one. What do we fear? What do we fear? Because that very thing is what will keep you from fighting the battle that God has commanded you to fight. What do you fear? Fear of rejection? Fear of loss? Fear of hurt? Loss of esteem? What do we fear that keeps us from fighting? Number two, what do we fight? What do we fight? Is our effort behind the scenes really to fight the enemy? Or is it to fight our fellow believer? All we do is hold back the church by fighting battles that we shouldn't be. What do we fear? What do we fight? And who are we holding back? That's not how you do it. This is how you do it. No, you shouldn't be going into this thing. You're not good enough. Who do we hold back? 
Would you pray right now with me? God, give me your eyes. Give me your eyes to see things as you do. Help my fear with your presence. Help me to fight what I need to and not other believers. And God, help me to advance others around me that are in the fight. Would you pray through those things? Express them to God right now. They're my prayer too. Just pray them in your heart and tell God right now. Father, these three, Israel, Eliab, Saul, help us to not see things like them. Help us to see things through your eyes. Advance your kingdom. Advance your church. Do it in us. For your glory, for your honor, for your faith. pray this, God. We pray this because of Jesus. Together we say, it's true. We say amen. You know what? Here's the greatest story ever told. The greatest story ever told is the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus had an enemy to fight. It was our sin. It was our adversary, the devil. He had an enemy to defeat, to secure our forgiveness he didn't fear, not even death, not even death. He focused on fighting the real enemy, and he did it not the way other people thought he should, but by giving his life on the cross for our sin, for our wrong. Enemy defeated, mission accomplished. We're the beneficiaries of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May that be our perspective, too. That's how we do it. Let's focus on Jesus. Let's see things through the lens of redemption. Let's have the perspective of Christ. Amen?